God bless you for being here tonight. We'll uh, get started pretty quick. Why don't you open the Bible to Acts chapter 9, if you will. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Let me say again how grateful I am to uh, share these services with you. And uh, I'm praying that God will uh, put in you what He has placed in me. That is a love for the Lord's churches. Amen. And uh, tonight we're going to look at the verse, Acts 9, verse 31, which is the first mention in the New Testament of churches, plural. Churches, plural. First mention, and we read it uh, in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, were multiplied. And that's churches multiplied. So we've looked at the first church, which is the church Jesus started, and out of that, Jesus Christ, I got you, thank you very much. Out of that, uh, we have these many churches. There I am, wow. I didn't turn my mic on, and they will turn me down a little bit. So let's get started tonight. Let's begin tonight by uh, taking a short tour of some famous Baptists. The first one there on the uh, far left side is John Bunyan. He's one of the early uh, Baptists in England. When it came time for him to either be licensed by the Church of England or not, he said, I will not. And as a result of that, he uh, spent uh, many, many years there, 12 years in the Bedford Jail, simply because he would not get a license. There was a law of uniformity that was going on where everybody had to be under the Church of England and he said, I'm not under their authority, and was willing to spend time in jail. He was removed from jail for a few months during that 12-year period, but by and large spent that 12 years there in the Bedford jail. He made his living making shoelaces for his family. And that's the only way that they were sustained, other than by the graciousness of God's people and God's providential care for him. Shortly after his jail sentence that he wrote what is known as Pilgrim's Progress. If you were in early American colonies, you had two books that you trained your children with before the age of public school. And that was a copy of the 1611 King James Bible and also a copy of Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, God bless John Bunyan. When he got out of jail, he began preaching again. You know, if you got any preach in you, you got to do something about it. And he went about preaching until finally uh, one night he was uh, involved in a, in a driving rainstorm on, on horseback, contracted what we would know as pneumonia, and died at the age of 60. 
John Bunyan wasn't as uh, straight on some issues, but he was very straight on the fact that believers needed to be immersed and became well known as an immerser of believers. The next man to him is lesser known to us, but well known in early American days. His name is Henry Dunster, graduated from Cambridge in England, came over to the New Americas, and became the first president of Harvard at the age of 28. And uh, he was a, an intellectual giant in his day and uh, began to read the Bible. How novel is that? Uh, if you're going to be a real intellectual, you need to read the Bible. Amen. And he began to read the Bible and realized that the uh, Congregational Church, which was the state church of Massachusetts, uh, really wasn't baptizing right. They were sprinkling infants. And Dunster, through his reading of the Bible, when it came time for his son to be sprinkled by the Congregationalist Church in 16 and 53, he said, I'm not going to do that. And so uh, Dunster was not only the first president of Harvard, he was the first fired president of Harvard. Uh, they uh, sent him on his way and later it was Dunster and others who became charter members of the First Baptist Church of Boston, died at the age of 50. The one in the middle you recognize as uh, our first president, George Washington. Next to him is John Gano or John Gano, however you wish to pronounce his name. And uh, John Gano uh, was a chaplain in the Revolutionary Army, which was led by our president. And during the course of conversations with John Gano, the president learned about scriptural baptism. It was the oldest daughter of John Gano that records the fact that her father immersed our president, our first president. And uh, that picture is in the uh, William Jewell College uh, in uh, Liberty, Missouri here. And uh, there's not much secular information about that. And uh, you can take that for what it's worth. It's in my presentation and, and uh, I've chosen to include that. The next one you would know for sure if you lived in England in the... Uh, early and middle and toward the late 1800s, and that's Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon would have been what we know as the pastor of the first megachurch in the world other than the church of Jerusalem. He was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Now some people say, well, what kind of Baptist was he if he did not have the name Baptist on his building? Well, you could not have a denominational name is what we would call it unless you were the Church of England. You could not even call yourself a church. You could be a chapel. You could be a tabernacle. You could have other kinds of name but only the Church of England could bear those marks. And so the early Baptists carried different names but they for sure carried the Baptist doctrine. 
Spurgeon, before he was the age of uh, 20, had preached over 600 times, and he became uh, renowned in the city of uh, England as a great preacher, even in his uh, young years. He built the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which would seat 6,000, would stand, have standing room for another 1,000, and had membership in his church during that time of over 5,300. They had AM services, PM services, Thursday night services. There would be some times that he would ask his people, don't come to church next week. Let our visitors have a place inside the tabernacle. Evidently, somebody put that word out tonight. Um, we, we have open seats here that are available. For the last, I will mention this on the Wednesday night session. For the last five years of Charles Spurgeon's life, he was an independent Baptist. He withdrew from the Great Britain and Ireland Baptist Union because of their liberalism and became an unaffiliated Baptist. Now, the last person on our screen tonight is uh, someone who would be well-known in Texas. That is uh, Sam Houston, the, the original president of the Republic of Texas before we joined the Union. Sam Houston was a, was a hard-riding, hard-living pioneer in his days. At the age of 47, he married his third wife. He was 47 and she was 21. Her name was Margaret and she was a Baptist lady, and I want every woman here tonight who may not have a Baptist husband to not give up hope. Because Margaret was very insistent on Sam, who was even older than her, obviously, to consider his eternity and his church life. He was sprinkled as a Catholic in 1833, but that was the age of 40, but it was only to qualify to own land in Mexico. You had to be a Catholic in Mexico to own land. And so he said, well, I'll let somebody sprinkle a little water on me. But he had no really uh, serious inclinations toward that. It wasn't until 1854, at the age of 61, that uh, Sam Houston professed his faith in the Lord and was baptized at the hands of Rufus Burleson, who was the pastor of Independence Baptist Church. He was baptized in Little Rocky Creek. Sam, Sam uh, Houston was baptized, and when he came up out of the waters, uh, Rufus Burleson said to him, Sam, all your sins have been washed away. And Sam Houston said, God bless all the fishes downstream. <laughs> and he also recognized uh, by, uh, it was a common practice, he reached, Sam Houston reached for his billfold to pay the preacher. That was common in those days. And he realized that he had left his uh, billfold in his pants. He, he had a baptized pocketbook. I, I would go for that for every Baptist. Don't, don't do it again unless you get their pocketbook in there, Brother Smith. That would be a great thing to do. Sam Houston died at the age of, of 70. Well, let's talk a little bit about our history. I can get it. There it is. Okay. Gregory Wills, who is the uh, dean of the School of Theology in Southern Seminary in Louisville, 
asked this question and then answered it. Are Southern Baptists in danger of losing their identity? My response is no. It is already gone, not entirely gone. Rather, it is a withered relic of what it once was and what it should be. I want to say to you tonight, may that never be said of you. I don't think you and I need to be putting on the shelf the great history of God's people and God's Baptist people. Now here's what my belief is. If you refuse to openly identify yourself as something, you will be closer to being identified as nothing. And we have churches today that if you had a search warrant and a pack of hound dogs, you couldn't find out what they are. They just got a very generic name up. You know, even they have like the river. I don't know what that means. Uh, We've got one in our town called the table. That's not a restaurant now. That's a church. And you don't really know what they believe because they don't want to be identified with any particular group. Let's talk about history a little bit. Secular history proposes that Catholics were the original Christians. If you read any kind of religious history, they immediately go to Catholics as being the original Christians coming out of what Jesus started through the lineage of Peter. But really the answer is when you look in your Bible that there's nothing close to Catholicism replicated in the New Testament. I mean, there's nothing. What can you see in Catholicism that looks like anything you read about in the Bible? And it's become a very superstitious, uh, pagan form, which has taken on its uh, role as being a representative of Christianity. Also, the answer is what eventually became Catholicism developed out of those who left the fellowship of sound churches are those who were marked because of their unbiblical teaching. They went out from us because they were not of us, for had they been of us, they would no doubt continued with us. 1 John 2, 8, 19. Or the book of Mark tells, or the book of Romans tells us in chapter 16 and verse 17 to mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that ye have learned and avoid them. Now, Baptists were neither Catholic nor Protestants. The famed reformers, uh, Luther, Calvin, Knox, and others, did not want to replace Catholicism. They only wanted to reform it, so Protestantism has only modified Catholicism. Keep up with me, if you will, tonight. Now, there are Baptists who believe that they did not exist continually during the centuries from the time of Christ. And if they believe that, then they have two problems. And here's the dilemma. For those Baptists to affirm that there had been doctrinal purity during the time of Christ and the apostles, the question is, where was it through the centuries that followed? They must make one of two admissions. They must admit that their church's DNA is Catholicism if Catholicism came from the apostles. 
If they do not have an origin in Christ or back to Christ, then they must link themselves with Catholicism. Here's the other dilemma. Or they must sadly admit that the apostolic roots died in the Catholic era of apostasy and were resurrected 1,200 years later during the Reformation period, leaving God without a sound witness for over a 1,000 years. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, it doesn't matter when a church was started, when the New Testament church was started, and was it perpetuated? A better confession is to understand that Catholicism was never apostolic, but was apostate from the beginning. New Testament churches had been repeatedly warned by the apostles about internal invasions that threatened the gospel. Over and over again, they said there would be, there would be people coming out of your ranks who would uh, present themselves as ministers of light, but they're actually ministers of Satan. Isn't it amazing today that we have in our neighborhoods and in our communities and in our nation, not churches of God, but churches of Satan. That's hard for some people to swallow. But if they're not gospel preaching churches, what are they? Acts 20, Paul warned the elders of Ephesus to make sure that they oversaw the churches that had been purchased with the blood of Christ because after his departing there would be grievous wolves entering in among them not sparing the flocks and they would draw away men of themselves to become disciples after them. All through the New Testament there are these warning passages that there would be people propagating another gospel. There would be Paul talks about someone writing a letter in his name. He said, I didn't write that letter. And John said, if somebody comes to you with another, another doctrine other than the doctrine of Christ, don't bid them Godspeed and don't let them enter into your house. Now, I spoke earlier about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a very gracious man. I read of his, uh, I read of his uh, formalization, his dedication of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and it was not just a church event. It was a citywide event. It had all kinds of church groups that uh, attended it. It was a, a, a recognition of his great ministry in the town of London. But if you ever want to know what he was, here is what he was. He said, we believe that Baptists are the original Christians. And he went on to say, we've never been connected to Catholics. We've never been connected to the Reformation. We were here before they were here. We have an unbroken line all the way back to the apostles themselves. I mean, he went on and on. If you'll just Google, by the way, it doesn't hurt to Google. It's painless. Google Baptists are the original Christians, and this whole, this whole quote will come in, and he's very thorough about what he believed with regard to the nature 
of uh, the Lord's churches. Amen. See, there really are two streams. There's a pure stream and there's a polluted stream. And since the time of Adam, those streams have flowed side by side. Amen. You can't just say, well, they're a church or... He seems like a nice man, and he he preaches out of a Bible. There are two streams. There are two streams of Bibles. There are two streams of gospel messages that are supposed to save people. There are two destinations where people will spend eternity, two kinds of preachers. We're pretty naive about things like that, aren't we, today? Let me make sure that you understand that sound churches were not always Baptist in name, but Baptist in principle. Now, there will be a test following where all of these names and the ages will be required before you leave tonight. So make sure you jot these down and begin to put those in your memory. And actually, I wouldn't do that to you, but... It's well known that these groups called the Monetists and the Novatians and the Donatists and the Paulatians and the Abigenses and the Waldenses and the, the Anabaptists were all groups who were Anabaptist people. They were people that would not accept the sprinkling of Catholics or any kind of rite that was carried on by other religious groups. And the only thing that really, uh, I, I like what, This uh, statement says here that the similarities of various Baptist groups do not relate to any intentional attempt at succession, but came from their individual allegiance to the New Testament, ecclesiology. That's what caused their commonality is they read the Bible. And they said, we need to make sure we preach the gospel and immerse believers, have congregations that practice that. Now, it took me a while, and this is, this is a takeaway statement. It took me a while to come to this position. Here it is. You ready? You can be a brother, but to some people, that you don't have to be their twin. Even among Baptists. Your pastor and I have talked about various things today, and I've enjoyed getting to know him so much. I, I, one of the privileges I have in traveling is getting to know some great people and their backgrounds and see how God has providentially brought them to where they are. And I'm glad that uh, he's right about most things that we've talked about. (laughs) I don't know of anything that he's not right about that we've talked about, but you know what I found out? Somebody doesn't have to be a twin to be a brother to me. Even among the Baptist ranks, we can disagree about some things, about certain kind of polity and how you organize a church and what you do as long as we do it uh, scripturally to the best of our knowledge. And so I want to just pass that on to you, that uh, a lot of these Anabaptist people that I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of uh, differences in their lives, but they had a commonality about the gospel and about baptism, which uh, linked them to uh, modern-day Baptists. Now, you you would recognize this, and that is uh, J.M. Carroll's uh, Trail of Blood. You no doubt have had that little booklet. It's worth your uh, whatever investment you might have that he tells about the millions of people who, who died for our faith. And uh, thank God for his work in that. Now, 
most of the trail of blood is now not believed by modern Southern Baptists. They don't believe it's historically solid, that there's not enough corroboration of historical evidence to prove a lot of Brother Carroll's information in that book. I'm gonna make, I'll, I'll make something about that at the end of this session that'll help you about that. Leonard Burden, who is the author of The Reformers and their stepchildren said, the Anabaptists did not initiate a new school of thought. They merely restated an ancient ideology in the idiom of the 16th century to be sure, but ancient nonetheless. No one is credited with having invented the Anabaptism of the 16th century for the sufficient reason that no one did. Rebaptizing is as old as Constantinianism. There were Anabaptists called by that name in the 4th century. Now, if you are concerned that this is just another Baptist talking about this, Leonard Verdon is not a Baptist. He was a historian and had evidence of that himself. Let me talk tonight just so that we'll understand who we are today on this side of our uh, understanding of what a church is, that God's people and God's churches have been persecuted and martyred. R.G. Lee, the great uh, pastor at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, preached the, the great sermon, uh, Payday Someday. Boy, you need to Google that one and listen to him wax eloquent in his oratory. It's a great, great sermon. said this, Our Baptist forefathers wrote history in blood before they wrote it in ink. They suffered death made jail bars, whipping posts, and torture racks blossom like Aaron's rod. As Baptists traced through the centuries by a trail of blood, we should leave some bloody footprints as did our forefathers. I don't think we've ever been closer to coming to that situation. Bloody footprints in this generation. We see an attack upon churches in America right now. Gospel preaching churches, even some that we would not consider a real true gospel message, and yet there is an assault even in America on that. And if things go the way that some think they may go, it may accelerate in a way that we never imagined. Let's talk a little bit about persecution. God's people and God's churches were persecuted and martyred by the Jews. In Acts 7, you have Stephen being martyred as uh, the first martyr of the Jerusalem church. And uh, he was also uh, obviously preceded by John the Baptist himself, who was not a member of the church, but at least he was the church's forerunners. God's people and churches were also persecuted and martyred by the Romans. You have James in Acts chapter 12 who was beheaded and who was next in line was Peter. Other than God's providential and miraculous saving of his life to continue preaching the gospel. God's people and churches were persecuted and martyred by the Catholics. It was uh, J.M. Carroll that noted that 50 million of God's people were were martyred in the dark ages. I've been to England a couple of times, three times actually, 
And if you go to where the crown jewels are, you get to the crown jewels by first going through all the torture racks that they had accumulated during Bloody Mary's reign where she persecuted and killed God's people left and right. And only uh, when she was uh, overthrown did uh, that end up quitting for a while. God's people also were persecuted and martyred by Protestants in Europe. About the only thing that Luther, Martin Luther, and John Calvin agreed on was that Baptists were a bunch of heretics. And uh, they, they enjoyed uh, encouraging others in their ranks to give Baptists a second baptism, which was to tie weights on their legs, haul them out into the middle of a lake, and drown them in mockery of their belief of total immersion. These are historical events that happen to those who are before us. God's people and God's churches were persecuted and martyred by the Protestants in colonial America. The very state where I mentioned of Henry Dunster uh, being fired in Harvard, Massachusetts, when John Clark and Obadiah Holmes came through there and baptized some believers in that state. They were both arrested. John Clark was fined, and someone paid his fine, who was the pastor in Rhode Island. But Obadiah Holmes said, I don't want anyone to pay my fine. And so they whipped him in what is now Boston Commons, a big uh, a park now in, in Boston. And uh, he was many, many days recovering from that. And that is a, a picture uh, that is portrayed of that. Here's what I'd like to encourage you to understand about yourself. That you need to go ahead and identify that you're different. Sometimes we just try to make too much of what we're alike. You know how how we're alike with all the other churches in this this area? We meet on a special day. We go to a special building, hear a, a special speaker speak from a special book. We take up a, a little bit of money and then we go home and eat fried chicken. That's about how common we are. Other than that, we are as different as daylight is from dark. Amen. We're different. And we need to know the difference. And instead of trying to persuade other people to be a part of us based on how we're alike, what we need to do is know how we're different that makes us Superior because we are New Testament Christians. We don't have to be anything ashamed of that at all. So let me clarify what we are and what we aren't. Number one, we are more than fundamentalist. Fundamentalism was a movement that began in around the 1900s in America by the major denominations who were trying to offset liberalism that had already overtaken Europe. And as a result of that, Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists and Reformed churches and all other kind joined together to try to to, uh, make sure that they were wed together on five major doctrines. And those are the inspiration of scriptures, the deity of Christ, his atoning death, the 
second coming of Christ, and uh, I, I forget what the other is. Uh, but here's my point. We believe more than that. We have more than five major doctrines. And it's not about agreeing with uh, someone about a handful of doctrines, but our doctrines are vast with regard to the numbers of them. And by the way, they did not stop the movement of liberalism into their ranks. They didn't stop it. Fundamentalism didn't. One man said, really the only thing that keeps fundamentalism alive are some Baptists. And I would say that to someone's shame. I hope you'll read my book. It's probably more clearly said than that. And uh, one of the other was the resurrection of Christ. Here's the second thing. We are less than evangelicals. Evangelical has become the large umbrella that covers everybody who professes to be a believer. And as a result of that, our churches need to make sure that we don't identify as evangelicals. Evangelical churches, which are many different denominations, have such a broad view of what they're responsible for that uh, we, can't, we can't fly that flag either. Uh, there's plenty of evangelical and parachurch organizations who say they're evangelicals, but they're pro-abortion, they're pro-LGBTQ, they're pro-feminist, they're pro-drinking, they're pro-environment. The list is, is endless, and you and I can't go that far. We just can't go that far. We're not evangelicals. We also are not charismatic Pentecostal. I hope you'll get my book or get a copy of it and get at least look at that and find out how Baptist, how New Testament churches are vastly different from some of our friends who have bought into Pentecostalism. And I don't need to, to do very much to identify that, but uh, we don't believe you can lose your salvation. We don't believe in ongoing revelation. We don't believe in women preachers. Uh, I mean, how many different ways can I tell you that we're not Pentecostal? We're also not ecumenical. That is, you and I cannot just join every attempt in our community with other churches. I just talked to a pastor tonight who was quite disappointed. One of his friends had preached at a cowboy church yesterday. And this is a Baptist church. A friend of mine as well and so my friend works where he works as a secular job and uh, uh, he kind of prodded him today about you know where he had been yesterday he preached at a cowboy church now I'm, I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna tell you I told this friend this I said this is my position about that I can't preach anywhere that I can't give an invitation if I can't give an invitation to join that church, I don't have any business preaching in that church because it's, uh, it's dishonest on my part to preach to a church that I can't say I endorse. And I won't do it. I, I, believe it or not, not people are knocking my door down trying to get me to come. You believe that after this week, no doubt. But we're not, we're not ecumenical and I... I 
I, I had a young lady afterwards who wasn't a church-going person who wondered what that term means. It's, a, it's actually a, a term that means universal, that you universally will accept any other kind of church and try to do ministry with them. Isn't it amazing what most ecumenical movements want you to do? They want you to give up your doctrine, but they want to keep theirs. Right? Come on. They want you to give up your positions so that you can join them in doing whatever they have planned to do. W.A. Crystal said that ecumenicity is another name for death for our Baptist faith. At least he saw it for what it was. Now, having said all of that, and you thought, my goodness, I didn't know you were one of those little narrow Baptists. Well, I'm a little Baptist for sure, not much to me, but I'm going to give you a little insight here on why God, why would God, you know, God doesn't save people only in a Baptist church. You got that? You know, some people get saved in a Pentecostal church. They may even get saved in a Methodist church. Who knows? They may get saved in a Presbyterian church. Wow. Who would have? Have you ever been told that Baptists don't believe that? They believe you've got to be in a Baptist church? J.I. Packer, who just recently died, I need to update that slide. He just died this year. Theologian, not a Baptist at all, but he asked the question and answered it. How does God, who is not the author of confusion, work with and bless those who are not entirely scriptural? How does he do that? On what basis is God free to save somebody in a church that's not even a scriptural church? And I believe that Dr. Packer answers it for us, even as Baptists. He said, quote, God honors the tiny needle of truth hidden in a whole haystack of error." God blesses truth. Whatever, wherever the truth shows up, God will bless that truth. Now, he doesn't endorse that for some other church group with regard to whatever other kinds of things but they may attach to it. But the good news is that God is, God is not obligated to only save people who walk through our building. But bless God, we ought to make sure that we're preaching the gospel so they could get saved here. And then we could lead them into discipleship to know what it means to be a follower of Christ and a New Testament believer. Now a moment ago, I mentioned the fact that some of the historical evidence is being uh, disavowed uh, like in J.M. Carroll's Trail of Blood. And uh, I want to just say to you tonight that Scripture is more important than history. That is, God's word is more important than even my history. I've tried to footnote everything that I've uh, gotten into, and I've tried to make sure that I've done it honestly and thoroughly. I've, I've done it also without the intention to reproach people who are not Baptists. I've, I've done it with the hopefully with the right spirit. But here's what Louis Ensminger, who was uh, J. Frank Norris's right-hand man during his day, said, I do not undervalue church history, but far more important for me than fallible human records of passing events 
is the New Testament forecast of church history. The former may err, the latter never. Now we may get our history wrong. Have you heard of uh, fake news? We've been hearing some of that for the last several years. And I believe that there is a lot of fake news. And a lot of people believe fake news. But ladies and gentlemen, the Bible doesn't have any fake news in it. It is God's word. It is truth. Andy Andrews, who is an an author, says that the past is what is real and true history is merely what someone records. Now, the past is truth. You can't undo that. Whatever has happened has happened. But then our reflections on that may not be accurate But ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is 100% accurate. It's God's Word. So I want to talk to you tonight, just as I bring this to a conclusion tonight, on the fact that God preserves what He treasures. If God's up to something, God, and treasures it, then He's going to make sure that He's going to continue that and watch over it And send it on to the next generation. Let's look at these things. Number one, God preserves his creation. You know everything is sustained by God? If it wasn't God upholding our creation here, it would uh, would disappear. It would vanish. Now, I'm, I'm not an environmentalist. I'm a naturalist to some degree. I, uh, I go fly fishing with some of my preacher buddies during the summer. And if we carry in a, a, a candy wrapper uh, in on the trail while we're fishing, we carry that wrapper out because we want to enjoy that stream for the next person just like we enjoyed it for the person ahead of us. But I'm not a tree hugger. Now, I do believe in, in global warming because this uh, earth is going to, burn up with fervent heat. And, uh, but God's going to say when it's time for a new heaven and a new earth. And until then, creation is going to be sustained by God. It's going to be preserved by God. Also, the human race is being preserved by God. Everybody, you know, we're all about the scientists. Have you noticed that lately? How we're all depending on the scientists. And have you noticed this as well? They don't agree on anything. They tell you to do something, then you do it, and then they say, no, we didn't mean that. Do something else. We do something else, and you don't know what to believe. You know what's going to preserve the human race? It's going to be God Almighty. In Him we live and move and have our being. God's doing this. I don't have a worry about the fact that I'm up here in Missouri. Is something going to happen to me? What if I uh, encounter some kind of deadly experience here? Well, they'll ship me back in a box and they'll put me in the ground and my wife will remarry and they'll have a big time. I mean, come on. You know how it goes. Hey, don't worry about stuff you can't control. The fact is, God's going to preserve your life just like he's preserving the human race. I love that about my God. God also preserves the scriptures. We have a copy of God's word Today, not because men have been very tediously involved in the process of making sure we have God's Word. 
It's been an act of God. God not only inspired the Bible, He preserves the Bible. And along the way, you and I have been blessed to have a copy of God's Word. What a blessing that is. And it's, a, it's God's work. And then God also preserves His ancient people, the Jews. There's no reason to believe that there would be a Jewish nation with Jewish people in this century were it not for God Almighty. God's the one that's done that. He gets all the credit for that. Now, they're blind. They don't see it. They don't understand it. But one of these days, uh, all the focus of the world is going to go to Jerusalem. And uh, God bless all of those who have, haven't made that trip yet. You're going to get to make a trip to the Holy Land. And uh, all the world is going to revolve around that little ancient city. It's the center of the world. It's the center of the nations, according to the Bible. I don't worry about the Jewish people too much, but I do worry about people that won't be a blessing to them. Genesis 12, God will bless those that bless them. He'll curse those that curse them. So we ought to have leadership in America that will support the Jewish people. God also preserves the gospel. It's the everlasting gospel. It is my unapologetic position that anyone who's ever been saved has been saved the same way. People look forward to the coming of Messiah. People recognize Messiah had come, and now we look back and say Messiah is coming again. We believe that the gospel is everlasting. It doesn't change. Now, there are men who who have an extreme form of what I would call dispensationalism that believe that God has saved people different ways in different dispensation. But there's only one gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God's preserved that. And I'm glad that when, when Abraham lived, he, he rejoiced to see the day of Christ. Amen. And I'm glad that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. I'm glad all those, those, those Old Testament people probably knew more than the modern day Baptists did about what was going to happen. Thank God for preserving the gospel. And then also God uh, preserves his children. Are you glad you've been preserved by the Lord? I didn't say pickled now. You know, uh, uh, cucumbers are pickled. But God's people ought to be happy. We ought to be joyful. We ought to be excited that God has saved us and saved us forever. And uh, we're, everything's in hand. We're in the hand of Jesus, and Jesus' hand is in the hand of the Father. Then I want to conclude by saying that God preserves His churches. Now, I need to say this. The promise of perpetuity is not to an individual church, but to the institution of the church. Now, I'm glad you've got a church here in St. Clair, Missouri. But don't you sit on your hands and believe it'll always be that way. You and I fulfill the promise that there will always be churches carrying out the gospel like God promised. But we don't have a guarantee or a promise that we're going to see that happen here unless we're about God's business. You understand what I'm saying? The promise is to God's church as an institution and I'm glad that uh, for more than a hundred years Mount Zion Baptist Church has been carrying out God's work here only eternity will reveal all the people who will line up 
to thank God for a church in St. Clair, Missouri that was preaching the gospel, seeing people saved and baptized. Let me, let me uh, give you a definition and then I'm closed and it's 7 o'clock. I don't turn into a pumpkin, but I'm going to turn the sermon off. Here we go. Perpetuity. It's the continuous existence of New Testament truth practiced by churches in every age from the time of Christ to the present. Now you say, well, can you give me the history on that? I've given you a little bit of history here, but I can give you three verses in the Bible. I already preached on one of them, Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That's a promise, isn't it? God made that promise. He also promised in the Great Commission that, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. We have that promise from the Lord. That there will always be His churches carrying out the work of the Lord until He returns. That prayer was made, or that statement was made to the apostles who were the first church... And it also included those of us in this century are the one preceding the return of Christ, the churches that are then standing for him when he returns. Amen to that. Well, thank God for the promises of the Lord that he's made to us that there will always be God's people and God's churches in every age. Let's have a moment of thanksgiving tonight. That God's not only given you a Savior, He's given you a scriptural church. And you can be thankful for that. I'm glad that I don't have to check out where I attend church every week and wonder if they're going to teach the Bible. Wonder if they're going to stand for the truth. I, I walk in the building confident that the church that I attend, pastor that I serve under, is a man who knows and believes and stands for the God's Word, the Bible, preaches the gospel. And maybe tonight you've entered this building and you're, you, you haven't even got a clue of what I've said and you've wondered, well, what is all that about? I'll tell you what it's about. It's about you being saved. God doesn't do this just to make a show of it. He's put us in the world to make us understand that somebody's eternity is in play because we're out in this world tonight to be preaching the gospel. And maybe you're here tonight and you've not trusted Christ. You don't know that Jesus died for you, shed his blood for you, died in your place, and is willing to offer you salvation free, give you a new life, come to live inside your life, and then take you when you die to be with him, to live with him forever. Oh my, aren't you glad you're saved tonight? I'm glad I'm saved. Hmm. It'd be pretty sad if somebody's not saved and they come and they leave unsaved. And maybe you're here tonight and you say, well, preacher, I'm saved. I know I'm saved, but I still had not got that church thing down. Well, why don't you go ahead and start with what you know. 
Don't worry about some of the details and see you get involved in some of the other things. Just start coming to church. Start being a Bible person. Read the scriptures. Start in the New Testament. Read how that God's ordained these things for our lives, for our blessing. I was raised in church. You'd think, well, boy, I bet you hate church, don't you? I know I love it. I can't get enough of it. Matter of fact, I traveled. Last year, I traveled 50,000 miles to preach in churches. 50,000 miles. This year's COVID knocked that in the head. It's going to only be about 30. But, uh, you know, I'm just traveling around the world, just preaching and having a great time. And, you know, people worry, well, are you worried about whether people like you or not? Yeah, I took a baby aspirin and got over it. No, I'm preaching the Bible. I'm here to tell you the truth. And I'm doing what I'm doing because I know that people's lives need to make a difference where they are. God can use you in this community. He can reach people through you. And hopefully we can get back on the the pre-COVID trail and get back to doing what we know we ought to do for the glory of God. Stand with me and bow your heads, please, for a moment, if you will. Lord, you know uh, tonight the hearts of every person here. No one's hiding tonight from you. There's no hiding from you. You look deep within our lives and see our need, and and you, you love us. And even tonight, with these frail, feeble words, you, you through your spirit will draw people to yourself tonight. And I pray there will not be anyone who has felt your presence and heard your voice speak to their hearts, that they would turn a deaf ear to that. I pray that tonight, even as they leave the building, that they will... Just uh, go by the preacher and say, we need to talk. We, we need to have a conversation. And that that would be a time that immediately would begin to change your life, change the hearts of people. Dear Father, thank you tonight that there are those in the building who've, uh, who've really understood that uh, church does matter. And I pray that we'll do the best we can to be the kind of church that we're supposed to be For the glory of our Savior who died for us and died for the church, loves us and loves the church, and uh, sends us as he sends the church to do his work. We love you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.